everyone and welcome to another episode another special episode of heroic purgatory an asian cinema podcast my name is john and with me as always my co-host jason jason how are you doing today i'm good john how are you i'm good as well so today uh to commemorate or to rather celebrate the start of the new year of 2023 we will have a short discussion uh or rather we will list we will have a discussion where we will list what were our favorite movies of the year with just like we did last year we'll give uh, each of us will give a top 10 that is their 10 favorite movies of the year that were released in 2022 in some form that means they don't have to be 2022 films necessarily but as long as they saw some major release in 2022 that that sort of counts for the purposes uh, of what our uh, uh, favorite films of the year were and in addition to that maybe we'll mention some uh, honorable mentions some notable exceptions the things that perhaps didn't make it to a list to our list but we're still uh worthwhile films uh that uh, were released this year and unlike in previous episode i think this in this episode we'll jump straight into our discussion of our uh, 10 favorite films of the year and we'll do the other stuff after the stuff that we usually do after we finished our discussion so jason unless anything uh unless you have anything else to add what was your favorite film what was your number 10 film of 2022 so I'm going to start by cheating and include two films in the number 10 position. And those two films are Lost Bullet 1 and 2. Oh, so it doesn't, it, doesn't, it doesn't bode well for our discussions to start off with a cheat, but okay, I'll allow it. Okay, well, it kind of zoomed in there uh, at the end of December uh, when I watched the two films on Netflix. Uh, the first film was actually released in 2020. The second one came out in December 2022. And uh, yeah, just to give a short summary, um, it looks like it's a three-part series in which we watch the exploits of a reformed um, criminal taking on corruption in the French police after he joins a special vehicle unit and engages in high-speed chase scenes and uh, beating up drug mules and corrupt cops. And um, you know, the story's a uh, solid foundation uh, for some really, really exciting car chases full of great practical effects and stunts. Yeah, I guess you could say this is the French Fast and the Furious. Um, like, a lot of it had me swerving in my seat, actually, and uh, sort of like gasping at the audacity of uh, some of the uh, camera work and the, the car uh, chases. Um, I'd say it's on the level of Ronin in terms of like vehicular mayhem. Or even uh, like Blues Brothers, with so many cars getting destroyed. I honestly, the the rest that well, that is fantastic in in how it climaxes the story. The rest of the film, uh, sorry to digress a little bit, but the rest of Blues Brothers, I found it. Uh, I've watched it twice, I believe, and I've always found it a bit underwhelming. I never, I don't enjoy that film that much. But the ending I, I is glorious. I'm not, I'm not denying that. I don't. I, I kind of find it a bit tedious, even if they're on a mission from God. But um, I think you have to be of that generation and to appreciate I, I, SNL. I think that's true for a lot of uh, a lot of eighties film. And I'm gonna blaspheme here and say that I consider Ghostbusters to be in the same category. I was never. I was never a fan of Ghostbusters, and I think it's a generational thing. Although probably a lot of people not from that generation will will say I'm wrong. But I uh, Ghostbusters. Um, like my sister, she's like half my age, and she really loved that film. Um, I think that's a Times yeah, classic. So, I don't know. I I never got it. I never got in a lot of those '80s films. A lot of those films starring, you know, like a Harold Ramis film oh. that style. Like uh, even in, starting from Animal House all the way to Spies Like Us and uh, 
Chev, all that Chevy Chase stuff. But yeah, uh, this it's is, just, it was, these are guys who've like uh, worked together on a comedy scene on SNL, for example, and like they've managed to make a skit into a movie. Yeah, it's never. I, I was never able to get that. And that, and Harold, I mean, um, Ghostbuster was the same essentially group of people, but it just never really never. But anyway, please continue with your uh, number ten. Yeah, uh, just to, just to wrap it up, it also has some really great um, action scenes, like fight scenes um, that feel genuinely bone crunching due to the stunts and fight choreography that um, favors brawling and using props like fire extinguishers and chairs. So I ended up like wincing a lot during um, the fight scenes as people are put through tables and bounced off filing cabinets. And yeah, it's got a, a brilliant, sexy French cast delivering it all. So it kind of zoomed into my uh, uh, sort of favorite films of the year and took the t- number 10 spot. What was your number 10? What, what, just uh, before I go, when did you say you watched it? Just recently? December 2022. Okay, okay so very recently. And it's on Netflix. Okay. All right. So, so you, that subscription is paying off. I see my number 10. I'm also going to cheat, uh, and, uh, pick two films or, or, or pick rather pick one of two films for which I'm not sure which one I would put as a number 10. And that is both, uh, that is a, the, the combination of two stop motion films. One is the uh, Guillermo de Toro's Pinocchio. And the other one is a relatively unknown film called Mad God. Oh, the Phil Tippett film. Yes, Phil Tippett. I was just trying to remember his name. And if I had to choose between the two, I'll probably pick Mad God because of how of how innovative and unique it is, and how just just purely mesmerizing it was to watch it. Even though it really doesn't have a plot per se, or it has a very loosely connected uh, pastiche of a plot, it still was just an incredible viewing experience. But Pinocchio was not bad. Pinocchio was definitely a more conventional story, entirely made of stop motion. And I haven't seen the documentary of The Making Of, which is also available on Netflix. And I've heard people say that it's even more interesting than the film itself. (laughs) Uh, But uh, the film itself was, uh, uh, you know, the usual Pinocchio story, wooden boy puppet that comes to life and then wants to become a real boy, blah, blah, blah. But uh, it, it, it has this unique aspect about it that it's set in fascist Italy. So in the late 20s, early 30s. Uh, and it's, it's set in this almost like cartoony fascism, but it's still nevertheless fascism. And it, it, it's scary at times. Uh, and that kind of contextualizes Pinocchio's adventure. You know, if you remember the original story, he gets separated from Geppetto. And, uh, you know, goes both of them going these separate adventures to basically find each other. And it is... You know, them, it doesn't feel like it, it would offer much of a unique angle, but them happening in fascist Italy, it does kind of change the point of view which you view them on, which you view them through quite significantly. And I think unlike the original story, it has a really, really heartbreaking ending. Okay. Uh, I think had not been for that ending, which is different, but also very, very well chosen and very well, well written and directed. I would may perhaps it would this would not be consideration because the rest it's it's relatively conventional. Um uh so that's it about Pinocchio. Mad God is almost an entire different beast altogether. It feels less less clean, it feels a little bit more amateurish, although that I'm not I'm not saying that in a negative way. It has that sort of like improv almost improvisational quality uh about it. It it reminded me, and if you watch it, I think you'd agree with me, it reminded me a lot of Junkhead. Yeah, having seen some images uh, from the film, this like that sort of um, uh, 
post-apocalyptic or yeah absolutely and even even like plot wise there's some because it, it involved a character who descends into this strange world uh from above to complete a mission although i mean after that it, it differs significantly and unlike junkhead the mad god doesn't have a complete plot he's more of a a, a collection of scenes really that form together a loose plot yeah but the one thing that i i'm not sure how i feel about it quite yet i like junkhead where pretty much the entire design seemed to serve a purpose however bizarre the world underneath was there seemed to be a functionality about it it seemed to to, to be a world that you could sort of like logic out to logic out about why that is there and what purpose it serves yeah uh whereas this one was not that it was it felt like a, like a collection of lovecraftian images kind of strung together without rhyme of reason and that's not necessarily a negative uh but it does it does it does serve as the point of departure from from the junkhead which is very aptly compared to i've i've heard that tonally it's um completely different from junkhead in the fact that it has no humor whatsoever uh, there, he has almost no humor I, there may be a couple of scenes will be funny like there's a lot of gratuitous death Mm. Uh, in the film, uh, which might might be funny, there's a lot of uh, mechan- uh, mechanized automaton which die in silly ways. Mm. Uh, and there's a scene uh, where this mad uh, alchemist with one eye feeds this kind of fish tank, throws worm into a fish tank to to feed these really cute looking fish or sea creatures. I don't know what they are. And then he opens a trapdoor where a spider emerges to eat the fish. <laughs> so th- th- there's a lot of uh, non sequiturs like that but yeah otherwise yes it has almost no humor uh, uh and yes i i recommend it i uh you can find it i think it's in the u.s it's currently on shutter but i'm sure it's somewhere available in the uk i, I think i think you'd enjoy it a lot more than i did and i enjoyed it quite a bit mm. you know, i'll try and find it because it's also a horror film let's just i like i think unlike junkhead which i think has elements of horror but it's not a horror film i think junkhead is more of a science fiction film this is a horror film i would unequivocally say that that's where it belongs well you said lovecraftian i was immediately uh intrigued <laughs> yes so lovecraftian maybe perhaps cronenbergian might be also another another term to describe it because there's i think there's a difference there maybe i would i would use the word cronenbergian more than lovecraftian uh, but you could say that about junkhead to a certain degree too so i yeah. don't know I, I make make your own decision about it but anyway that's that's my number 10 if i had to pick i would say uh mad god but Pinocchio was also, I think, a worthy candidate for this position. And uh, Pinocchio was on Netflix, so... Uh, it is in the US, so yeah. Yeah, and the UK. All right, all right, cool. So if anybody's interested... I mean, Pinocchio is just an enjoyable film. I would recommend it regardless. But Mad God is... I think if you can tolerate some of the gore, I would certainly recommend watching it because it's just so, so interesting. Oh, another another thing that... Sorry, to, before you go to number nine, another thing about Mad God that... I'm not sure how I felt about it was that it is not entirely stop motion. There are some live action parts with actual actors yeah. that are mixed into the stop motion. And it, it felt visually inconsistent. The, I mean, they try, it was, this was a film that was made mostly by uh, amateur efforts, not amateur efforts, but uh, volunteer efforts over a period of 30 years. Uh, and I think the director tried really hard to make the live action scenes be visually consistent with the stop motion scenes, but I don't think he succeeded entirely. And I just wish they'd made it entirely stop motion. Uh, but all right, that's all I had to say about this. What's your number nine, Jason? So uh, my number nine is Days Before the Millennium. 
So it's the first of uh, many Osaka Asian Film Festival films. Uh, it's directed by Chang Teng Yuan. Um, and it's a two-part film. It starts with a story of a Vietnamese immigrant in Taiwan in the early 90s and her fleeing an abusive husband. And then the second part is of a Vietnamese woman who works as a private detective who travels to the locations in the first part of the film for an investigation. And uh, through their two stories, we're given sort of decades of change in Taiwan, such as like uh, different waves of immigration and how they've integrated into Taiwanese society, uh, economic crises, um, natural disasters. And we're also told um, tales of immigrant women surviving in foreign lands. And um, I, I struggled to describe it when we first talked about the Osaka, Osaka Asian Film Festival podcast. Remind me, was this in your top five list or did you just, was it an honorable mention? I think it was in my top five list. I'm going to have to go back and listen. But uh, yeah, I, I, like, um, I found it sort of difficult to talk about at the time so, because I uh, like, couldn't find any adequate comparisons on the fly. But uh, having recently watched a few Angelopoulos films, I think that's a, a, a good comparison because uh, it takes us through a great sweep of history, different time periods, and um, uh, people with like gentle editing and some neat camera work. And um, like lots of beautiful, beautiful, haunting images that have stayed with me from when I first seen it until today. So I wanted to include that in my top 10. All right. Uh, yes. And I remember you talking very, uh, very fondly uh, about it. Uh, not to, uh, again, to digress a little bit. Uh, I did the shameless self plug. I did a, a guest I guessed it in a different podcast on the Angelopoulos Eternity in a Day uh, at the projection booth. So if anybody's interested, they can check that out. Okay, I can't listen to that then. <laughs> yeah, so I was a, a guest host for that episode. The projection booth is another great uh, movie podcast, perhaps one of the greatest movie podcasts out there. And I was lucky enough to be invited as a guest host for that movie. Since I am originally from Greece, uh, it felt appropriate to kind of talk about that movie. Not that I have particular knowledge of Greek cinema. Probably not not as much as other people, but but anyway, yeah, Angelopoulos is a great director. Eternity in a Day is a great movie, uh, and I'm I, I don't know now that you compared it with that, I am I'm a little bit more uh, eager to watch it. Uh, I don't know if it would be readily available now. It sounds like the kind of movie that does not necessarily get widespread distribution in the West, except for the occasional festival appearance. Yeah, uh, I, I can't remember seeing it at any other festival. So, yeah, maybe you have to go to Taiwan to see this. Yeah, uh, I mean, I'm sure the internet being the resource that it is, I'm sure, I'm sure there's a way to get it. But uh, something to keep an eye out for sure. And yeah, like uh, I published uh, my own sort of top 10 on my blog and uh, Theo Angelopoulos' uh, Eternity and the Day made it onto that top 10. I saw that. Yeah, so I saw that. I was... It is, I think, his best film, definitely. Uh, not, not my favorite film of his, uh, but it is, it is I think, un unobjectionably his best film. So my number nine is none other than Drive My Car. Uh, uh -oh. And I think people, uh, people might be surprised as to why it is that high. And perhaps some other people might be surprised as to why it is at all on the list. Because I didn't, like I mentioned in the episode that we dedicated to this uh, film, uh, this Oscar winner, actually, it didn't. I didn't seem to be that positive about it. I seem to have a lot of criticism, and that's true. And I did for a second contemplate to leave it off my list, but it just, it just didn't feel right. And and even though I, 
it did not appeal to me on a, on a, I did not enjoy watching this movie on a purely uh, entertaining level, to put it like that. There was still something about it that enabled me to appreciate it. Yeah. Uh, I still maintain that I think it's too long. I think they could easily cut some of it. And I think uh, I like to think that's a fair criticism. But despite that, I think just like the acting, sort of like the, the, the tone of it, the, the, the med- meditative tone of it, the direction, uh, the source material, I think it make it worthy enough to, I think, be on, on my top 10 list. Not that it's that's a great honor or whatever, but it is at least, I think, I think I can give it that much. And of course, there's, you know, we, we've already had a whole episode to it. There's nothing much to say. It's uh, uh, the story of a theater director who's putting a multilingual production of Chekhov after his uh, wife's death and uh, the development or rather the burgeoning relationship with his young driver that's been assigned to him by the, the theater company. And and like I said, you know, I, we, we certainly talked about it a lot. It is an interesting uh uh, I don't remember. I don't remember much about the score of this movie, but I do remember the 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 cinematography was relatively uh, had some nice shots of the Japanese countryside. Was that Japan? What what city was that? So Hiroshima, and then I believe they traveled to Hokkaido in the north for the snow scenes. Yes, yes. Uh, I'm certainly this made your list too. Yeah, much much higher. <laughs> uh, but uh, but anyway, so I don't know. Do you have anything to say about this movie? I liked it a lot more than you did. <laughs> Of course. Uh, yeah, well, we know that from that episode. That's why there's, I don't want to spend too much time with this because everything that I said and you said, perhaps, was in the episode and I don't necessarily have that much to say. It's, it's, I think it's better than I liked it, but the heart wants what the heart wants and it just didn't, didn't do it for me. And uh, I'll just end it at that. So, Jason, what is your number eight film? So, my number eight is uh, The Girl on a Bulldozer. And um, this is one we both saw at the Osaka Asian Film Festival. And uh, it's the story of uh, Ha-young, a ruffian who takes care of a little brother in lieu of a father, a hopeless man deep in debt, and about to lose the Chinese restaurant that the family live above. When the father uh, is involved in a mysterious uh, car accident, uh, she has to take responsibility for the family, the debt, and clearing up the mystery of what happened to her father. And I think we both agreed that it was like a really great character study and also a great reversal of expectations of uh, what happens in sort of revenge films where you have the typical formula of a tough guy battling until he becomes a hollowed out monster. Instead, we get a scrappy working class girl up against impossible odds and finding that her anger isn't enough to sustain her throughout her mission. And um, I think it works. It works because like the situation is real world corruption and politics that we can understand how ordinary people get enmeshed in uh sort of like uh, dirty politics and uh, debt and also it's like a fantastic central performance by kim hyayoon uh who actually won uh best new actress at the blue dragon awards in uh, uh november yeah which i think when we announced this uh, either episode good or episode good i i thought she should have won best actress without having seen the competition of course after i i think it was crazy that she wasn't even nominated for best actress i suppose maybe they have certain rules that you can only be for new, your new actress you can only get that one i think this was her first movie role yeah yeah so maybe there is some some something about regulations that she's only eligible for that one but it's still to me her performance was just phenomenal 
Absolutely. She takes you through a range of emotions from rage to despair to tenderness. And you feel like her character actually grows over the course of the film and she's totally in her corner, empathizing with her. And I think it was, if I'm not, if I, my memory serves, uh, this was our respective my number one and your number two for that uh, Osaka episode. Yes, I think so. Some Something like that. It was definitely high for both of us on that list. And it's also on my top 10. It's a couple of numbers higher. Uh, but it, I also have it on my tap. And I, I would agree with everything you said. I think um, it's also one thing that it made me appreciate more of it. Because, you know, I've seen, at the, at the, as I do at the uh, around December, January every year, I try to watch a lot of films that came out that year to sort of catch up uh, with the zeitgeist, so to speak. Uh, and it kind of, it shocked me at how many great films I was able to watch that did not have a great ending. A lot of people seem to so kind of, a lot of writers seem to, seem to not know how to end an otherwise intense and excellent story. But uh, The Girl in a Bulldozer was just, it ended, I think, in a perfect note to kind of wrap up her character. And it is about, I mean, this is a character study. I think you mentioned that. And it is, so it, it needs to end with a, with a moment of closure for her. And it does so perfectly where she kind of realizes the place that, or the rather the detriment that her anger has with that final confrontation with uh, one of the guys that's trying to get money from her, I forget who it was, uh, from the other family that was involved in the accident or something like that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it just, it just wraps up the father-daughter relationship and you feel like she's come to a new level of understanding about herself and how to interact with the world. All right. So anything else about that movie? Yeah. Uh, uh, no, that's about it, really. Just uh, like it's a really great film, one of the best performances of last year, and um, hope more people can see it. He is available in the US in some bizarre streaming services like um, Cocoa and uh, Korean On Demand. I forgot about that. There's a, there's a streaming service called Korean On Demand. It looks like it's on Amazon Video in the US as well. I'm not seeing it. Oh, you can rent. That's right. You can rent it. I was looking at, at free streaming services, but yeah, you can rent it on Amazon Video. So yeah, there you go. So there's no excuse. You can definitely catch this movie up if you if you really want to, and it's 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 worthwhile to do so. Uh, nowhere in the UK though. <laughs> oh, that's uh, that's unfortunate. Uh, although perhaps we maybe will get there too. All right. So my number eight is another movie that we both have seen, and that is Lesson in Murder, which we also talked about. In uh, in the Osaka, I believe it was the Osaka Film Festival. No, it's the New York Asian Film Festival. It was at the New York. Okay, yeah, but this is a film that I did not expect to have that big of an impact. I think I I was number five on that list for me, either number five or number four. And this film is one of those that it's perhaps the plot itself or the conceit has a few holes that kind of uh, kind of pick at it, but the performance of the main actor or actors are just so strong that just make it memorable. And this is that category of film. And just to give a, a quick summary of it, it is about a, a third-rate university student who who becomes acquainted and begins a, a correspondence uh, with a convicted serial murderer who has confessed to all his crimes, uh, which consists mainly of middle school students, if I remember correctly. Except the last one, which he claims he did not commit. And the student becomes intrigued enough to investigate that and to determine whether or not the serial killer is telling the truth uh, about this last crime. And then what involves is this sort of psychological back and forth between the two uh, and the realization or perhaps the implication that the serial murderer is uh, manipulating the student. Mm. 
And this one was one where I thought the ending didn't quite live up. I think, if I remember correctly, we both agreed about that. It kind of ended on a very, very ambiguous note. Yes, a sudden revelation, which is like, uh, okay, how's you just dropped it at this point? <laughs> exactly, yes. And like I said, there are many holes which you can sort of like find about this movie, many, many flaws that you can find, but it just, the performance of, I forget the actor's name, who plays the serial murderer. Um, Sadao Abe. Exactly. It was just so remarkable that it kind of stays with you. And ultimately, that's really, that's that's what you can say about a, a top film of the year is a film that stays with you long after you watched it. I mean, some of this film, some, some of the films that I have on this list, like Pinocchio, like Mad God, and some of the ones that uh, will come later, are movies that I've seen relatively recently that I feel very strong about. But it's possible that in a six months from now, I won't feel that way. And the fact that this movie has stayed with me for six months, that again, it's, it has to be on the list. Even though, again, I can remember the flaws and admit its flaws. It's, it has one element about it that is so strong that I think uh, it's at least worthwhile to remember it. Yeah, it's a great uh, battle of wits between the two uh, lead characters and Sadao Abe, who's, who I typically associate as being like a funny man, even though he got what his major start in like a horror film, a really grotesque horror film. Like he's got this brilliant shark-like grin that he flashes throughout the film and he's just like this gentle personality that's like a, a, a sheaf that hides the blade of this murderous evildoer. But I found the film uh, too plodding. You know, beautiful imagery, really interesting psychological aspects, but it's just too slow for me. Uh, what I liked about it is that the, every time Abe was on screen, he was just so interesting to look at and listen to that it feels like like every scene where he's not in it feels like a build-up to when he'll finally, like, okay, we're doing all this work, so we have a justification to get to him. And that, I would agree with you, that is uh, that could feel a bit slow, but I don't know, it didn't, it didn't bother me as much. Hey, there's some th- other good stylistic things that go on, such as having the projections in the um, actual interrogation room and changing the dimensions of the interrogation room and taking out the screens and so forth, so you've got this sort of... Uh, sort of a mental manipulation visualized really well yeah yeah absolutely and there's also like a great way to do sort of like this to demonstrate this subjective point of view of things uh through the flashbacks and the projections that like you said yeah and so like i think like i've seen a lot of people rate this one highly and it didn't quite work for me but i think other audiences have got a lot from it all right yes and i did certainly all right so that was my number eight uh, Jason, why don't you give us uh, what your number seven was? So, uh, number seven is Swallow by director Mai Nakanishi, uh, who I actually interviewed. Uh, it's a short film uh, where the story uh, takes place in uh, Taiwan, and it's one of an actress inviting a rival to a dinner where there is the promise of consuming uh, sp- special food that will lead to keeping one's youthful appearances. However, it's all a trap. And uh, I think, like, the aspect, some aspects of the story, such as like uh, consuming food to keep youthful appearances, will put uh, one in mind of the Hong Kong horror film Dumplings by Fruit Chan. Uh, but Swallow is its own beast. Um, it's uh, it's got this. It's written and directed by Mai Nakanishi, and like her previous ho- horror film, a short called Hannah, 
it's like a minimalist in style a babysitter who has a supernatural encounter in an apartment that Mary Kondo has ransacked and tossed everything out of it's got like white walls sparse furnishing and um, camera work and the acting are really restrained and graceful whereas in contrast Swallow it's much more maximalist it's much more exuberant uh, in terms of its colours in terms of like the acting of some of the um, some of the characters um, much more uh, outspoken and flamboyant and the camera work and editing going to overtime in the second half of the film and uh, it's full of really great images and sequences but also underneath all the fire visual fireworks there's a critique of like the impossible standards of beauty and youth that women are held to and also like the sort of way it makes uh, people competitive with each other and it's made its way into my top 10 because like the visual invention on display and the control of atmosphere has really left an impression on me and uh, like i've watched some really dud j-horror titles that recycle uh visuals and ideas but seen a million times whereas swallow felt um different it felt uh fresh and uh i really enjoyed the experience and uh, yeah, I also uh, interviewed the director and she said she shot the film in Taiwan in a short amount of time. Uh, so that made... Wasn't Dumplings also shot in Taiwan? It's Hong Kong, isn't it? Isn't Hong Kong? I don't, I don't remember. I mean, I know the director is Hong, from Hong Kong, but I, I don't know why I had this impression that it was shot in Taiwan, but I, I, I have no basis to back that up. So you're probably right. Yeah, it's part of the uh, Free Extremes horror series with Park Chan-wook and Takeshi Miike. Uh, yeah, I th- like... I came away from the film like dazzled by what i'd seen and uh like desirous of like having a feature film from director mai nakanishi so it's left an impression on me and i was also really happy to uh watch it and uh yeah get the interview so it made its way onto my top 10 list and remained there all right, all right. and i haven't seen it so i can't really comment on it all right, so my number seven is a film that I think we also, another one that we both like, and that is Angry Sun, which is a Japanese film about a high school student with Filipino descent who kind of struggles to accept the norms of both his domestic life and his social life, and that constantly makes him angry at the world, hence the titular Angry Sun. Uh, he both at the same time, and most of the film is about him seeking down, uh, seeking, uh, trying to find his Japanese father and as well being uh, mad at his Japanese stepfather. Not stepfather. Uh, I don't think they're married. The the boyfriend. Oh, soon to be his, stepfather. <laughs> soon to be stepfather. Something like that. And of course, at the same time, he's also trying to navigate his uh, relationship with uh, uh, his uh, boyfriend uh, while at the same time sort of uh, trying to, again, revealing what it's like to be a gay teenager in Japan. Although I don't think the film focuses as much that it's it's really about that I think the part that I remember most about this film, and this was another Osaka film, if I remember correctly, was the relationship between the titular angry son and his mother. Yeah. And how they eventually, mostly the son, is able to accept her despite what he perceives to be a shortcoming. Uh, and this is another one with the performance is not strong. The plot is, of course, strong. The social criticism, insofar as it is there, uh, it is very poignant. It's very unspotted. It is uh, a bit unusual for me because I'm not used to seeing a lot of Japanese movies about immigrants in Japan. I'm not saying they don't exist. I just haven't seen it. And it is a Japanese movie about immigration in Japan. Not about immigration in Japan, but a film that, that to which immigration is a part. I found it very, very, very striking, a very, very interesting take on it. Uh, and also a very interesting take about just uh, being an outsider 
in a society that does not necessarily is not necessarily known for accepting outsiders as well as they could. Yeah, it's uh, like films about immigrants in Japan can be sometimes exploitative. Or uh, you know, you've got characters who are uh, treated dismissively. Um, I felt like this was um, holding up. Uh, yeah, like really interesting insight into like the Filipino community. It felt genuine. Like it could be an issue film, or it could be didactic. It could be uh, tokenism, but it's actually genuinely interested in the characters and how they fit into society. That's why I said I think the fact that saves this from being didactic or or uh, over the top is the fact that it, it is about the relationship between the son and his mother. Yeah, that's the primary driver, and you've got like two really powerful performances uh, from yeah. the lead actors um, that sell you on the fact that they love each other but they also hate each other it's like that typical teenager parent relationship <laughs> but it also meshes into it um image um identity as and uh, parental responsibility or all, all these uh, more complex all these other themes exactly exactly and i'm assuming this also made your list yeah it was uh, a bit higher on my list okay oh uh, we're starting to see a theme here yeah um like well maybe i can expand more when i get to that point uh but okay so we can talk about it again but that is number seven uh so jason what is your number six so number six is melting sounds by kahori higashi um who i interviewed uh about this film and it's an osaka region film festival uh title and it tells the story of a young woman who goes to a late grandmother's house in a sleepy country town and she creates a patchwork family out of people who drift to the house for various reasons and one of those people is an old guy who creates sound tombs. And what that means is that he records sounds on uh, cassette tapes and then he buries them in the ground. Uh, this is a music, uh, music lab film, which means that uh, producers teamed up uh, an up-and-coming director with an up-and-coming musician. And what we get is an electropop star uh, being cast in the lead role and her music acting as a score to the scenes and uh, the upbeat nature of the music and um, the musician's uh, sort of uh, spunky personality counterbalances what is really actually quite a somber story of reckoning with death and the passing of uh, all things from life and memory. Uh, the atmosphere uh, just uh, is totally absorbing because we're taken to this small town uh, which is fading and populated mostly by elderly people that's what it feels like. Uh, and the characters who are drawn to the house are reminiscing about old times. And the house is full of props that are just like from the 90s or from earlier decades. And uh, we're watching characters develop a really tight, warm family relationship in a wintry atmosphere. And it, it became quite moving. But the real knockout punch for me, um, one that still makes me quite emotional to think about, is the perp the old man's purpose in creating the sound tombs. Uh, like, when, I, I can't reveal anything. But when I uh, when I found out, and uh, every time I think about it, it just makes me well up with tears. And uh, I find it's like a really simple but powerful idea. And uh, yeah, overall, it's just like a really gentle, uh, simple but deep and moving film. And it's remained uh, with me to this day. So it made it into my top 10. All right. I haven't seen it, so I can comment it, but it does sound a bit like a very fascinating project. Yeah, it's um, perhaps like Music Lab films have been streamed uh, in like um, special events uh, around the world um, in the past. So perhaps they'll be streamed again in the future. 
anybody who's interested, if you keep uh, up with Heroic Victory on Twitter, uh, I'll definitely uh, make sure to put out a link to if the film's ever available. But if you have the chance to see it, I highly recommend it. All right. So my number six is The Girl in the Bulldozer, which we already talked about. I think it was your number eight, right? Yep. Uh, so I already talked about a great film, great performance, uh, definitely a worthwhile uh, undertaking. It is available in the U.S., so so I recommend uh, people watch it. And I don't really have anything to add about that unless you do. Uh, no. <laughs> All right. So, Jason, what is uh, what is your number five? Uh, number five, uh, we've picked over this film in two episodes already, but uh, we're going to name it uh, Decision to Leave by Park Chan-wook. Um, this is the film that got me back into cinema after two years of uh, viewing films at home. And um, uh, for anybody who doesn't know, it's a love story that plays out as part of a cat and mouse game between an ace detective and a Chinese immigrant in Korea. As the detective investigates whether the woman murdered her husband in the first half of the film, he falls in love with her. And in the second half of the film, we watch as she tries to realize her love for him. And uh, I, yeah, it's, uh, as heard in previous episodes, it d- didn't quite win me over. I liked it intellectually rather than emotionally. Um, it was winner of the Best Director Prize at Cannes Film Festival. And it had, I have to say it's one of the best directed films I've seen this year. Uh, I just think Park Chan-wook's just a master at uh, transitioning between different time periods, locations and characters through like match cuts and uh, so on. And um, yeah, the love story at its heart didn't quite move me. Um, and I'm not sure, I can't put my finger on why. But um, the one thing that I did take away with was the language barrier. It's one thing I think about every so often between the Chinese immigrants and the Korean detective. Uh I've, you know, good performances, um, but yeah, it just didn't quite win me over emotionally. Um, yeah. I, do you have any thoughts? It doesn't sound like a scathing uh, a praise or, or uh, a, a very enthusiastic endorsement for being in your top 10. It's, I, it, it didn't make my top 10. And I, I, at first I struggled. I said, how can I possibly not put this in my top 10 when every critic in the world has this in their top 10? Sometimes number one, but I, it wasn't that great, honestly. I mean, it was a good film. I have, I don't have anything majorly negative to say, but it, I found it underwhelming. Yeah, uh, like you said, a lot of things that you said, I agree, are very you know immaculately directed, but nothing out of the ordinary. It didn't, it didn't do anything that Park Chang Wook hasn't done before. It didn't do anything. I think you did mention stuff about technology, but I still maintain that it's nothing that we haven't seen before in the spy thriller genre. The love story left left a lot to be desired. The ending certainly was its weakest point. Uh, it's just I don't know. It was okay, but it did not. I felt I felt I've seen a few really great films, some of which are coming up in my list. That for this one to be, I don't understand how so many people can include this so high in their top ten because this again it, underwhelming is the only thing. And perhaps perhaps had this not been so highly praised. To raise expectations so high, maybe I would have been a little bit more receptive to it, but I, I don't think so because, like you said, the love story, which is presumably the center of this film, it was just felt hollow a little bit. Not bad, but it's just like the product of someone who cares about form a lot more than they care about substance. Hmm. Yeah, there was a like a uh, lack of uh, I don't know. It, yeah, I can't quite put my finger on why it didn't quite work. Just um like. A lack of, I don't know, uh, sexual frisson or intimacy. Um, but like visually, it was dazzling. And um, 
that's what I've taken away from the film. I want to go back just to look at the visuals and see how the scenes transition from one to the I other. I want to go back and look at some of the visuals. I, I have no desire to watch the film again. There are some scenes that I want to look at that are interesting. But again, in as a whole, it's nothing that Park Chang-wook hasn't done before. And we did talk about a Park Chang-wook film, Old Boy. And I'd say that visually, that's leaps and bounds more interesting than Decision to Leave. Yeah. So, like, that's what I'm saying. It's just, you know, perhaps had that been, maybe, maybe we're being a bit unfair because if, if Decision to Leave was a filmmaker's first film, let's say some some unknown, this young kid part, named Park Chang-wook that just came to the scene with Decision to Leave, perhaps we would all be talking differently about it and we'd be praising a lot more. But I think that's just how things are. It's it's nothing out of the ordinary that Park Chang-wook hasn't done before visually. In terms of story, it's like he didn't really give it the attention that it deserved. Or maybe he was just more interested in the formalist aspects of it. <laughs> it's possible. It's possible. And maybe that's what other people appreciate. And that's fine. I'm not, I, I certainly cannot fold anybody for that. It's just not enough for me to have it in my, in my top 10 of the year. Yeah. All right. So anything else about uh, Decision to Leave? Yeah. Um, I'm eager to sort of get my hands on a digital copy and make lots of screenshots. <laughs> so paint it. <laughs> All right. So my number five is another film that we've both seen, although I, I have a feeling this w will not have made your top 10, and that is All Quiet on the Western Front. I uh, didn't quite make it, yeah. Yeah, the recent Netflix uh, film uh, that came out just a month ago or so, and was directed by someone whose name I sadly forget, uh, but it is an adaptation of Eric Maria Marx's famous novel All Quiet on the Western Front. It is relatively faithful but takes out significant uh, certain significant aspects of the novel and mostly focuses on the war scenes and it, it kind of maybe also turns them into a bit of a spectacle but it also turns them maybe uh, into the most horrific war scenes that i've seen in any films it is a vicious anti-war film it, it's the film i've seen a lot of war films and it's the one film that's made me feel like i experienced the horror of the characters the closest of any other film that I've seen. Have you seen Hacksaw Ridge? I have seen Hacksaw Ridge, and I, I, I enjoyed that film. I thought it was a masterfully made, but I don't think it approaches the level of All Quiet on the Western Front. I, I, the action scenes in that are really grotesque and horrifying. They are grotesque, but there's... I like with all Mel Gibson films, I think Mel Gibson, with all the controversy, you know, which is undeniable, of course. Not, it's not even controversy, it's... it's He's a crazy person. There's, there's, there's no denying that. But he's a genius filmmaker. I, I cannot, I cannot possibly deny that. And I think there's something about Huxley Reach that is able to just kind of like offer. But it, it I, it's hard to put into words. But with him, it feels a lot more like a spectacle. I don't get the horror uh, of him. Whereas with All Quiet of the West, for I really got the horror, especially the first where we get, uh, we get before we introduce to the protagonist Paul Brumer. Uh, we meet, we follow an unknown soldier for about five minutes whose uniform ends up uh, being Paul Brumer's. And those, like, the, just the horror in his face is just incredible. It's, it's just so evocative that I cannot, I cannot think of any other film that, that has given me the same emotions. I'm, I'm probably there is that I'm not familiar with it, or perhaps it's been a while since I've seen something else that is quite like this. But in recent years, at least, it's just nothing has quite felt like All Quiet on the Western Front. Yeah, and uh, just to go back to the opening scene where you see like uh, the uniform being given and like he, he sees the name tag of the previous soldier. It's like a, a great sort of indictment on the recruitment process and just how uh, these kids don't know what they're actually getting into. 
Yeah. And like a lot of the literature of the time, a lot of uh, like the the, uh, the the literature for which the novel comes from, there is an, an air of melodrama that perhaps it's slightly over the top, but, you know, it didn't bother me so much in this film. And it's also, I think, fits with the style of literature that the film is adapted from. Hmm. Like Remark and Hemingway and uh, Fitzgerald and all of these guys were sort of like the, from the, the did most of their writing in the interwar period. I think sometimes they're referred to as the their the lost generation because they lived sort of like between the two world wars and they were sort of like traumatized on both ends. Yeah, uh, that's why they're sometimes referred to as the lost generation. And and that style was sort of like a melodrama was a key aspect of that style. I'm trying to think of that Hemingway novel. Was the Hemingway novel set in World War One with the ambulance driver? Uh, a farewell to arms. Yeah, farewell to arms. That's uh, pretty yeah, where powerful. he's a driver. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's so. Which, yeah, I mean, there's nothing as melodramatic as escaping uh, in a lake with your pregnant wife nurse to escape the war. Drinking lots of grappa. Yeah, and uh, uh, for whom the bell tolls is my favorite. I mean, Hemingway is. I I love Hemingway. I've read most of his novels, but anyway. What else? So, so again, that that was my number five. I, I don't have much else to say. It, it's I can I can understand people's objection to it. Let's put it like, like that. I this is sort of the opposite of drive my car, where I didn't like it personally, but I can understand and appreciate its objective qualities. This one is the opposite, where this one just had a tremendous impact for me, but at the same time, I can understand why some other people may not like it as much. Although mm. it has done pretty well critically. I mean, it is received. High praise from most critics, and it's been nominated for an Emmy, right? Uh, I think Golden Globe. Oh, Golden Globe. Yes, for but, a best foreign film. I don't think it's eligible for the Oscars, though. I don't. I don't know that it is. Yeah, just uh, like stunning uh, recreations of World War One battles. If like, um, if you're European, you've grown up um, learning about trench warfare, and to actually see it visualized in a film with. Like production values, um, stunning production values. It's uh, quite an experience. It's horrifying, um, and it's on Netflix. Uh, if you and it's two and a half hours long, so you know, brace yourselves. But it is you know end to end action almost. Yeah, loads of battles and um, really uh, horrifying body horror moments, like in the uh, inclusion of all sorts of different. Uh, trench warfare tactics tanks flamethrowers the, the works so you know it's like uh, like you said earlier it's a spectacle yes yes and i think that a lot of people object to that because the the original novel doesn't focus on the spectacle but it's not it's not spectacle for spectacle say it's spectacle that makes you it's kind of like the i i equate it to the i don't know if i mentioned this the first time i mentioned this film but I equate it to the hand blowing scene in Robocop where they they try to butcher uh Murphy. Yeah. And it's uh, that is a an over the top accent scene, but it is not it is not it doesn't make you feel good about it. It makes you feel disgusting, actually. It makes you feel uh disgusting of the violence. And I think a lot of the violence in this film is the same. It doesn't it's not like Tarantino violence where it's aestheticized. It is it definitely, for the most part, it makes you feel really afraid of it. Yeah, you see that like the characters do not want to do this, and there are some really um horrible death scenes where people are just bleeding out. Absolutely, and characters Absolutely. are sort of reckoning with what they've actually done to another human being. Okay, so uh, Jason, that was my number five. What is your number four? 
So my number four is Angry Sun, um, which we've already talked about. I think um, one of the other things I want to mention is like uh, I worked uh, with a translator on the interview, um, Takako Pocklington, and um, we had like we came at the film from totally different perspectives because uh, she was uh, a bit more critical of the mother than I was. Um, she's a mother herself. Um, she's Japanese. So are you talking about the translator or the director? Oh, the translator. Okay. And uh, whereas I, you know, having lived in Japan, I could appreciate the mother's sort of struggles as a sort of immigrant in the country. So I thought, yeah, this. I was I was critical of the son. I thought he was a jerk. Yeah, I thought the I thought the son was horrible as well. Yeah, I don't endorse capital punishment on children, but someone need to beat that kid up. Like no, someone needed to slap him. No, any other parent, and he would have been punched. Any other parent. He would have been punched. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> but I mean, I can, of course, I think that's what makes the movie great is that you can definitely see both sides. Even despite my frustration with the son, I can definitely see his problem. Yeah. And um, uh, yeah, it's great that we're able to sort of like see different perspectives. And then they like, they're actually um, uh, rect like differences uh, rectified at the end. And people actually get, get along together after uh character growth uh one thing i will say is that it's at the japan foundation touring film program uh which starts in the uk february 2023 and it will be playing at my local art house cinema okay nice it's not um i i've just looked it up and it's not currently streaming uh, or playing anywhere in the u.s so that's unfortunate but it's you know sometimes these films take a while to appear so maybe eventually it will uh it will show up somewhere in the U.S. But I, yeah, this one's another film that I strongly recommend people to watch it if you have a chance. It's currently getting a theatrical release uh, in Japan, in, in mini theaters in Japan. So Okay, because it's been, I mean, this was Osaka, so this was a while ago. I thought that was over. Yeah, it's over a year ago. It's just gone on theatrical, I think it goes on theatrical release uh, next week. So it's like January 15th, something like that. Okay, so this could even be considered a 2023 film by our standards, I guess. Like, yeah, if it's playing in cinema. Yeah, that's true. So if you want to include it in your film next, in your list next year, you can. I, I'm hoping I see lots of great films in 2023. <laughs> yeah, 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 same, same. So, so my number four. So I should point out that all, all these films that are left, so four, three, two, one, they could have been in any order. I feel strongly about these films. I feel so strong about these films that I could have, any of these could have been number one. But of course, I had to pick an order. So for number four, I picked the film Tar, directed by Todd Fields and uh, starring Kate Blanchett as the titular Lydia Tar, a world-class conductor who, who is suspected of, uh, of grooming her young, uh, some of the young members of her orchestra for sexual favors. Uh, and of course, once that is revealed and once a former student commits suicide, leaving a damning note behind, uh, her career and her life kind of slowly but surely sp spirals on out of control and leads to her downfall. It is just like a fantastic film all around, but the the one thing that just makes it over that brings it over the edge is Kate Blanchett's performance. It's just phenomenal. It's it's some of the best acting that I've seen maybe in 10 years. She just does such a such a phenomenal job capturing this fictional character because it's a fictional, it's not a real conductor, although there's are all references to real conductor like Bernstein and uh a bunch of German conductors that kind of are referenced uh, as uh, as being as uh, as historical figures that influenced her, and it's just 
there, there's something about sort of how the, the story proceeds, because it's never confirmed that she is guilty. It is implied, and she certainly seems to favor, uh, she's, of course, she's a lesbian in the movie, and she seems to have this sort of like transactional view of relationship where she has relationship with, any kind of relationship with other people, there's usually some kind of quid pro quo, quo available. Like her, it's implied that her wife, she's married and she has a kid, it's implied that her wife in the past helped her achieve the status that she has today. And it's also implied that she sort of like uh, gives, uh, puts the spotlights on younger, good-looking performers in her culture. But it's never confirmed that she's ever kind of stepped over the line and done anything that is outright inappropriate. And in the end, it's never, it's never even, I don't think it's Javier suffers out that. She kind of puts herself into a self-imposed exile as a... Uh, just a, as a move to kind of reinvent her image in the end. And the film ends in a very, very tragic note where she's kind of kind of like debased herself as far as her professional life go uh, to do something that she would initially consider beneath her. But at the end, she has no choice. Okay. Intriguing. And it, yeah, it's, it's, I recommend it. it's a bit long. It's a bit on the long side, but it doesn't feel long uh, it, because it's just, it, it's one of those things, like I mentioned before that, the story at times was a little bit too telegraphed, although not so much because again, in the end, we don't we know nothing for certain. It's all implied; nothing is is confirmed. But it's it's just it's every second that Kate Blanchett is on the screen, and she's on the screen a lot. It's just you cannot take the eyes off the screen. And, and in fact, what starts as a relatively normal and slow drama turns into a more bizarre film later on. It it kind of it kind of goes off the rails eventually. So it's definitely not not something that you'd expect to see just from the description. It's certainly a worthwhile title. And I, I believe it's on... Uh, I mean, it's definitely available on pretty much all streaming services. I don't know if there's anywhere that's available for free, but I'm pretty sure you can find it in the US or the UK or anywhere else in the world, actually. Yeah. Uh, you said Todd Fields directed it. Did he also direct uh, Carol? I don't think so. Kate Blanchett was in Carol, but Carol was not directed by Todd Fields. Uh, but it was Todd Haynes. Todd Haynes, okay. Todd's, but not the same Todd's. Yeah. Yeah, I saw a lot of critics talking about this on film Twitter, and uh, it seemed highly uh, rated. Yes. It's one of those that made a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, top 10 lists this year as well. Yeah. Looking at Todd Fields' um, a filmography. I don't think I've seen any of his works. He's not made that many films as a director. He's also an actor, if I'm not mistaken. Mm. Uh, but he's. I haven't seen any of his previous directed films. Uh, but I think the the direction is adequate. But I think what really makes this film is just it's the her, like uh, Kate Blanchett. Uh, Kate Blanchett. Yeah, it, that's that's really what makes this film. It's 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 ninety percent her and ten percent Ted Fields. If the way I'd split it, if I had to. Okay. So, yeah, is it streaming? Uh, can't see any UK services listed. Okay, never mind. Maybe it's still making a theatrical release because it's a relatively recent film, but... Maybe, yeah. Yeah, but I'm sure, I'm sure it, it, it will get there. There's, there's no doubt. In a couple of months, maybe. Yeah. Okay, so that is my number four. What is your number three, Jason? Now we're getting into top three categories, so this is, this is the big three. I don't know. I've started to question whether I should have rearranged my top 10. Uh, <laughs> it's all right. And you know, this uh, number three uh, for me is a Taiwanese short film called My Sister by Pan Kei Yin. Um, 
and it's when I saw it at the Osaka Asian Film Festival, and it's an intimate portrait of a teenage girl on the cusp of adulthood as she begins to question her place in the family uh, as her younger brother seems to be hogging all of their attention and uh, she hears a revelation about her background. And um, the reason why it's uh, so high is because it's just a rich atmosphere of like a rural Taiwanese town working class life and a really um, great uh, 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 perspective on a girl's unhappy summer, which is full of like resentments and uncertainty as she has all these like um, social slights delivered to her by a brother who's really, really irritating. He's like a, a real dumbass in a, in a way that everybody can relate to if you've ever had like a, a younger brother or a, uh, maybe a younger sister who's totally irritating. Uh, but um, the film ends on this uh, brilliant moment of togetherness, which undercuts all of the sort of drama and um, comedy uh, that preceded it, uh, where you see the family come together and it's also like just as the girl's about to realize her dream and go to university so it's it's tinged with a poignant sense of uh, parting and uh yeah just those aspects of it uh really uh struck my heart and uh it was one of the best films i uh seen this year i'd say yeah, I remember you talking about it, the Osaka uh, Asian Film Festival episode that we did, but I, I haven't seen it, unfortunately. If I think this is going to be one of those films that's hard to see since it's a short film. And uh, Yeah, though those don't tend to make it, and festivals are pretty much... I mean, there's always a chance it will be re-shown in some festival or some event. Uh, you said, is it Japanese or South Korean? Uh, Taiwanese. Taiwanese, sorry, yeah. So uh, Japan cuts sometimes bring those up, Japan society, but since it's Taiwanese, I don't know. Who know? Who knows? Apparently, it's being developed into a feature film, so I'm curious as to whether it can sustain its length. The story can sustain the length. All right, we'll we'll find out, I guess, in the future. And uh, that's my number three. All right, so my number three is the this year's Palme d'Or winner, Triangle of Sadness. Oh, okay. directed by Ruben Oslo, and this was a phenomenal film. It's just it was essentially a uh, the entire film was an allegory for society or at least that's one way it can be interpreted it's a uh, just to give a, a short summary of it it's about a young couple that consists of a male and female model that go on this bizarre luxury cruise that is full of ultra rich people and then just as this story proceeds everything gets crazier and crazier and stranger and stranger until it just goes to the level of absurdism and it's just such a fascinating, and it's also a funny film. It's 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 a funny film. It's a it's a very playful film. It's it ends on a tragic note, but for the most part, it's a it's a comedy. I would say it's a black comedy. And there are several chapters on the film. I think three chapters, and each of them kind of there's there each of them are commentaries on modern society, commentaries on gender roles, commentaries on class, and commentaries on human nature and capitalism and socialism. In fact, there's even like outright discussions in the film about uh, about those things and he's just there's also like a, a a boat scene that is maybe the most disgusting uh film on scene it is um i don't think i'll spoil by describing things but it is about uh it is that they're all having dinner but the bar the, the the weather is not perfect so the the bar the boat moves left and right a lot so every every pretty much every crew member gets seasick and also gets food poison at the same time yeah, I've looked 
I've looked it up on Amazon. Um, it's available to rent, but there are also poster wall art prints, and one of them is of a rich lady vomiting. There, there's a lot worse that is shown in the film. <laughs> it is that film is just, that scene is just spectacular, and it lasts about like 15 minutes. It's not a short scene. And the film is also a bit on the long side. It's two and a half hours or something like that. Oh, okay. What's it? Woody Harrelson's a socialist, and he's the captain. Yeah, he's the captain of the boat. He's a he's a rich, a filthy rich socialist. That's that's I think how he describes himself at some point. It's the socialist we all want to be. <laughs> yeah, uh, but uh, but yeah, it's a it's a crazy film. I there's 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 not really much I can reveal about this film without spoiling it because there's a lot of twists and turns, sort of, uh, in the film. It starts off as the quest. Uh, I hope I'm not spoiling too much because this happens fairly early in the film, but. It's fairly early you find out that the couple, the young couple, which are sort of the protagonists of the film, are not together because of love. They're together purely for business or just to raise each other's status on Instagram as both are models. And the, the, the man's goal is to try to make the woman fall in love with him. But then sort of like the story quickly shifts away from that. And then in like the third chapter, a character that was a fairly, fairly minor character for most of the movie sort of becomes the protagonist or becomes a very, very major character. Okay. So it's, it's an epic. I would classify it as an epic, despite not having the format that most epics, epics do. Let me just say this. It is a, a, an absolutely unquestionable worthy uh, Palme d'Or winner. I haven't seen every film that competed, but uh, it is definitely an, uh, an unquestionable, unquestionably worthy of the title. In fact, I would even give it Best Director. If, uh, wow. he, uh, despite Park Chan Wook winning that, because I have no objection with Park Chan Wook winning Best Director uh, for Decision to Leave, that, I'm fine with that. But I would actually, if, if, if I had a choice, I would probably pick Triangle of Silence for that or two. Although I do know that the can doesn't usually like to give the Palm d'Or and a different, a major award to the same film. Yeah, I was going to ask if it deserved the Palm d'Or, and you answer that question. Oh, absolutely. No question. I think it deserved maybe every award. It, it's, one of the greatest films of the year. Wow. And it's only, not, not number one, only because I just, like I said, it could have been number one on a different day, but I just like the other two films just a tiny bit more than this. Yeah. But all the hype, all the top 10 lists that it, all the awards that it's gotten, all the hype that it's gotten, abs- absolutely deserved. Mm. And really, that's all I have, to, I have to say about it. Okay. What's your number two? My number two is. Another Osaka Asian Film Festival film. It's another short film, and it's called North Shinjuku 2055. Ah, I remember this. I remember this very well. And actually, I wanted to see this one, but I don't think I've been able to, to get my hands on it. Well, uh, di- director Daisuke Miyazaki has uh, shown his films on various streaming sites, so you might have a chance to see it. If, uh, if it's ever about, I'll... Be sure to sort of send a message to you and uh, tweet it out. But essentially, essentially, it's a conversation between a journalist and a street scholar in the titular Tokyo district of Shinjuku, North Shinjuku, and it's set in the year 2055. So it's like science fiction, but it's told uh, in black and white uh, photographs, still images, and uh, up until like the very final scene. And uh, so we see. an area of the city that's united by a rebellious spirit and hip hop. And so you've got like street style running through it and you've got um, so um, images that are reminiscent of uh, Chris Marker's La Jete. So that was a new discovery for me after watching this film. 
And that was an equally. And that's that's why I want to watch it. I I want to, I want to see how it is reminiscent because Ajate is, uh, is one of my favorite movies. It's all more of an experiment than a movie, but it's just I love that. Even the story is great. It inspired, uh, Thirteen Monkeys, which is another great movie by uh, Harry Gilliam's uh, Twelve Monkeys. Der- Twelve Monkeys. Did I say Thirteen Monkeys? Yeah. Uh, Twelve Monkeys. Uh, but it's also just the visual style of La Jete is just phenomenal. And to, Absolutely. To, to, to like think that he, he did all that with uh, with still photographs. And and great narration. Oh yeah, absolutely. And some great music too. There's like I think there's a quiet violin that plays in La Jete. Mm, yeah, that that was a new film for me. Uh, and I was able to discover it thanks to North Shinjuku, yourself, and YouTube. <laughs> and uh, yeah, like from start to finish, I found it. Uh, a refreshingly different, uh, atmospheric and absorbing took me into like a, a, a future sci-fi world and it has a nice twist, uh, at the end and, uh, yeah, great track that plays over the credits. So that was like a really great discovery for me. And I also interviewed the director. So, uh, people please, uh, check out the interview on my blog. All right. Uh, so my number two was the film that I've already mentioned. Uh, in this podcast, and that's The Banshees of Inni Sharon, mm. uh, directed by, what's the name of the director? Martin McDonough. Ma- Martin McDonough, starring Brendan Gleeson and, and uh, Colin Farrell. Uh, and it's uh, set in this sort of like separated and isolated Irish island during the Irish Civil War, I think closer to the end of the Irish Civil War, maybe. Uh, the war is mentioned in passing, but it doesn't directly involve the plot of the film. And it is when uh, Calm, which is played by Brendan Gleeson, suddenly and almost entirely out of the blue, decides to end his friendship with his li- uh, with his uh, the, with his lifelong friend Pedrick, which is played by Colin Farrell. And Pedrick, Colin Farrell's character, sort of like refused to accept it and doesn't have doesn't understand why uh, why Colm is no longer friends with him. So he does everything he can to sort of like rekindle that friendship, uh, despite Colm's very very strong objections. And these objections lead to increasingly tragic consequences that by the end of the movie, they completely go sort of out of, out of control. And it is this almost like, this is also another sort of absurdist existentialist film. It could also be interpreted as a metaphor for the Irish Civil War, war and the development of uh, uh, the Irish society in those and subsequent years. But it's also, I think it's like a, just an existentialist piece about sort of like uh, trying to understand sort of like the, the fundamental nature of the relationship between people. Uh, and uh, like when you see the the objection, when you sort of like realize the objection that the friend, one friend has for ending the friendship, they're very crass and they're very blunt, but they're also kind of very fundamental at the same time. So much that he's willing to do himself harm to stop to stop that. And it's also about you know kind of like like the sense of sort of like immortality through creation. There's also that element to the film where one one of the characters just wants to be remembered for something. Yeah. I don't know if you had a chance to see it. Not yet. It's one I really want to see because like so much positive word mouth. Absolutely. I think this was another one that's highly received uh, justly. So I don't remember if it won any major awards. I think it's nominated for a bunch of glo- Golden Globes. And I think this is sort of like really showcases McDonough's sort of like talent for writing. I think he was a playwright before he became a, a filmmaker. And I think I would rate it in the same sort of like category as in Bruges. Okay. Which I think a lot of people consider it his best film. Maybe it's still his best film, but I'd say this is, if if this is second, it's not that far behind. Yeah. 
Uh, and it's some beautiful cinematography of sort of like the Irish uh, countryside. I don't actually know if the film is shot in Ireland. Maybe it is. I think it maybe it's in some island. Uh, but it is a fascinating setting because it's sort of like this place that is completely isolated from everything else that happens in the war. But uh, but they they're sort of not completely in the dark. They know they know of the war and they comment on it sort of like very casual. It's like, oh, can you believe that? But but yeah, but the the, the main plot is, has nothing to do with the war. Yeah, unless you consider it an allegory for the war, which is a like I said, a very very plausible interpretation. Okay. All right. So that was my number two. So Jason, uh, what is your number one film of the year? Um, Drive my car. So oh, okay. <laughs> It's not the most. That is that is shocking. Yeah, I kind of hinted at it when I gasped in uh, exasperation and surprise, and it made your number nine. Um, so yeah, it's not like the most groundbreaking of films, but to me, it was the most well composed, and I found it very, very emotionally moving and um, satisfying. Uh, like as you said, great performances from the cast, um, beautiful cinematography. Um, and like the integration of like three of Murakami's short stories and Chekhov's play into making the storyline for the film is just masterfully done. And uh, yeah, it's like that. I found um, the the final scenes with the play director and um, the uh, uh, Korean actress uh, constantly moves me to tears every time I watch it. I I find I can rewatch Drive My Car endlessly, um, so it made my number one of the year. I just I just found this one very emotionally engaging and satisfying. Uh, all right, yeah, no, I can see that. I can see that. It just like I said, certain things about it just didn't quite move me as well. I think I think I can recognize it's masterful, so that's why it's in my top ten. Yeah, uh, perhaps one day it will get even higher. Uh, depending on, I don't know, I, it depends on how things go, but, uh, but I can certainly see why people see this. And this is tech, like a few of the films that we've talked about, this is technically a 2021 movie, but it didn't really reach a lot of places until 2022. So it definitely counts for our, uh, for our, uh, list, but I think it was, it, it was a uh, best foreign film at the 2021 Academy Awards. I think it's 2022. Well, yeah, the 2022, that's when it took place, but they are honoring films of 2021. Okay. It was some people refer when they mentioned the Academy Awards in reference. Some people refer to the year that they take place, and some people re- refer them to the year uh, of the films that they honor. So the tw- the the awards that take place in twenty twenty two honor the films of twenty twenty one. I think most people do the former, but I tend to do I tend to do it the other. I, I like I, most things. I do them backwards. <laughs> Whatever works. Uh, yeah, but all right. Any, anything else to say about uh, Drive My Car? Yeah, I'm uh, probably end up rewatching it sometime soon. <laughs> yeah, I am curious to rewatch, not to rewatch, to watch more Yusuke Hamaguchi films. And in fact, I have some. I think I forget if it's Netflix or Hulu or one of them that kind of popped in my queue, and I I added it. Uh, I forget which one. Uh, it was in 2014. I remember that much. Do you remember what film he did in 2014? 2014. Um, I don't know. Is it? Oh no, no, sorry. Uh, it's uh, not 2014. I- I'm confusing. It's Wheel of Fortune and Fantasy. Oh, that was also 2021. Yeah, so that popped up in my queue. So I kind of, uh, I kind of decided to, to, I kind of pop. But it's not, I'm curious to watch 
more Yosuke Yamaguchi films because I like I told you I watched Asako one and two after we talked about it, and I, I enjoyed that quite a bit. Uh, so I'd like to to explore him a little bit more, but I don't necessarily have a uh, have a hankering to to rewatch Drive My Car. Yeah, there's uh, Touching the Skin of Eeriness from 2013, um, which is like a kind of a murder mystery police procedural. It's like a genre film. There's also Happy Hour, which was the film that sort of made his name internationally. Okay. But he's also done lots of um, documentaries, like um, Storytellers and um, things involving the uh, March 11th earthquake and tsunami. And, and he also did uh, an adaptation of Solaris as a student filmmaker. Yeah, yeah. Okay, sorry. <laughs> That's okay. So anything else that you want to add about uh, your first, your favorite film of the year? Yeah, just glorious uh, experience. And uh, yeah. Uh, all right. So my number one is another 2021 film, technically 2021 film, but wasn't really, didn't really receive widespread release until 2022, or most festivals didn't get it until 2022. And that was The Worst Person in the World, uh, a Norwegian film that coincidentally, it was the first film that I watched in 2023. Because it was just it just kind of popped up on my Hulu. I'd heard a lot of good things about it, and I decided to watch it. And oh my god, did it blow my mind! Wow, uh, it was it it just it, again it was it was perhaps a little bit more understated than say Triangle of Sadness, but it was had a similar vein where the film was a very emotional and very touching, dramatic personal story about the main character, sort of like the titular worst person in the world, or although she's definitely not the worst person in the world. Uh, it's like I think the title is used ironically, uh, but it's also this sort of like existential struggle that she faces literally to find meaning in her life. And it's to give a summary of what the plot is. It's uh, it's depicts the first maybe forty years of uh, of the main character's life, Julie, uh, who well, not in the first forty years. It's she starts when she goes to university, but she's very indecisive and doesn't really know what to do. She first starts as a medical student, then uh, she decides to do psychology, then she doesn't like either, and then she decides to do photography. So she kind of like changes from one thing to the other. She kind of seems to settle down when she meets a uh, a much older, well, not older, but maybe about 10 years older comic book artist whom she, fall, uh, she falls in love with and kind of starts a serious relationship. But even that, even throughout that relationship, which actually takes place most of the film, is in relationship with that. And she's actually trying, struggling whether or not to remain in a relationship within multiple town multiple times throughout the film uh she really struggles to really find meaning in her life and determine whether that is what she wants and then they have a lot of discussion about whether or not they want to have kids whether or not she wants to be a mother whether or not she wants to do this or that and that and it's 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 essentially just her trying to understand what it is that she that makes her happy and by the end of the film it kind of ends on a tragic note because she never is happy She's never able to find happiness. She's able to kind of settle into a life of, uh, let's say, mediocrity, but she's nev- she never achieves that kind of satisfaction that she's great for most of her life. And there's a lot of things that happen throughout this that I'm leaving out for the sake of avoiding spoilers that are truly heartbreaking. I mean, the film is really, really heartbreaking by the end. Okay. Uh, it ends, it ends, it ends, I would say, in a hopeless manner. There are some existentialist films that end, end hopefully, in the sense that the character is able to find meaning somehow. And there are certain existential films that end very hopelessly, that kind of conclude that the, the, the quest for meaning is ultimately hopeless, and they don't give any solace after that. And I'd say this one is more the second kind than the first kind. Yeah. But it also has uh, 
a, a very understated, but at the same time beautiful cinematography or of, uh, I believe it's Oslo. Uh, I believe the town that they're in. I'm not 100% sure. I know it's Norway, but I believe they are in Oslo. Yeah. Yeah, this is another film I saw a lot of people on film Twitter talk about, and it's uh, widely available on streaming services. Yes, I for me it was on Hulu. So yeah, definitely another one I have to check out. Yep, I recommend it. Okay, uh, and I'm sure you'll yeah. Uh, I'm sure I don't you don't have Hulu in the UK, but I'm sure it's gonna be somewhere. I I don't know if I want any existential sadness. <laughs> um. Yeah, I mean it didn't make me depressed by the end, but it it definitely. Put me, I really was able to identify with the main character and her struggle to find meaning. Even though it actually deals with a lot of topics that are unique to the female experience, uh, no doubt about that. There's, it is, it is, I uh, could be also classified as a feminist film. Yeah. Uh, it's because it talks a lot about sort of like women's role in society and, uh, like, like again, the, the, the decision of, uh, the conversation about children is brought up very often in the film. That's one of the main kind of points that she struggles with it's all i still was able to kind of identify in a more on a more elevated level and a more abstract level with like the struggles that she goes through to trying to find like a place in life that will make her happy yeah well uh after watching it i'll probably put on drive my car just to find some catharsis <laughs> sure absolutely absolutely so i think that's that's uh our top 10 so i'll go through what i'll just repeat my top 10 uh in one breath uh, just to remind everybody, and then you can do the same after me, Jason. So my number 10 was uh, Mad God, alternatively Pinocchio. Number nine was Drive My Car. Number eight, Lesson in Murder. Number seven, Angry Son. Number six, The Girl in a Bulldozer. Number five, All Quiet on the Western Front. Number four, Tar. Uh, number three, Triangle of Sadness. Number two, Banshees of Inisherin. And number one, The Worst Person in the World. Uh, why don't you enumerate yours as well, Jason? So my number 10 was Lost Bullet 1 and 2. Uh, number nine was Days Before the Millennium. Number eight, The Girl on a Bulldozer. Number seven, uh, Swallow. Uh, number six, Melting Sounds. Number five, Decision to Leave. Number four, Angry Son. Number three, My Sister. Number two, uh, North Shinjuku 2055. And number one, Drive My Car. All right. Uh, so with our, our respective top tens being done, is there, are there any honorable mentions that you you know didn't quite make into your top ten list from that are from twenty twenty two, but but you still think were noteworthy to mention at least in uh, in passing without uh, going too much into them. Yeah, it's kind of like uh, a lot of short films uh, that I've been really impressed by uh, this year. I suppose honorable mentions, if I can um, say, uh, uh, all quiet on the Western Front. Um, Episode 8 of Guillermo del Toro's um, Cabinet of Curiosities. Um, uh, uh, Kahori Higashi film, uh, The Resident. Um, yeah, I suppose uh, The Wonder of a Summer Day, which you reviewed on V-Cinema. Um, yeah, those are my honourable mentions. Uh, yeah, I have a few as well. So The Northman, which I mentioned, that was uh, pretty decent. Didn't feel good enough to include in my top 10, but I enjoyed it. Uh, Glass Onion which was the sequel to Knives Out, uh, directed by Ryan Johnson. This one was also directed by Ryan Johnson, starring, um, what's his name? Daniel Craig. Daniel Craig. I actually thought this was better than the first one. Oh, I'm glad to hear uh, it, because the first one was such a chore to get through. Yeah, I the first one, I enjoyed it only because I'm a fan of Agatha Christie-style mysteries. 
yeah. uh, murders. And that one's like, it just, it's not even, it's not even a subtle homage to that. It's pretty much open, an open homage to that. And I think, I think had I not been such a fan of Agatha Christie's style murders, I probably would not have enjoyed it uh, as much. But I thought the second one was still the same. It is largely an Agatha Christie romance, but I thought it did a better job in certain aspects that the first one fell short. Uh, what else? Uh, Guidance, a Chinese science fiction movie that I reviewed for uh, V Cinema. I thought that was pretty interesting uh, as a science fiction movie. Uh, Dealing with Dead, which I, I forget if it was the New York uh, Asian Film Festival or Osaka Film Festival. It was New uh, York a, Asian Film Festival. Okay, it was a ch- Chinese-American film uh, yeah. that I, I thought it was quite good, a nice family drama. Uh, Decision to Leave, I didn't put that in my honorable mention because, like I said, I, I don't think it's a bad movie. I thought it was a very competent movie. It just, it just left, left me uh, a lot to be desired. And um, just to, to indulge my cynicism, in addition to my honorable mention, I've also created a most overrated films of the year list. Okay. Which is a very short list. It includes the movie RRR, which I watched over the holidays. And I don't understand why so many people like this movie. I did not get it all. It felt over the top, almost verging on propaganda, even though perhaps, you know... Uh, <laughs> Uh, deserved propaganda considering what the British did, but it still felt like an anti-British propaganda. Yeah, I've heard it's like Hindu nationalism. Hindu nat. Oh, absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. And and also the action just so over the top, so unappealing. Everything just felt fake about it. I don't understand what people. The only thing I enjoyed were the dancing scenes, some interesting choreography. That's about it. I'm I'm sorry, but a guy punching a tiger—that's cinema. Yeah, I mean, if you enjoy that kind of thing, but it like like uh, the half the film was like that. I don't know. I don't know. It, I don't. I don't understand why. I understand why some people view the uh, can enjoy certain aspects of the over the topness of the action. But so many people to put this in their top of the year. I I don't get it. Uh, but anyway, and the, the next movie that I think I found it overrated, and this is going to be controversial, was the film Everywhere, Everywhere, Everything, Everywhere, All at Once. Oh, that was another film that was a chore to get through. <laughs> I I did not enjoy it. That, I'm I'm gonna I, I'm gonna say that that kind of fits more in the category of decision to leave. I did not think that was a bad movie. I thought that had certain things about it that were interesting. Certainly had inno- an innovating take on the whole Doctor Strange idea. Not that Doctor Strange was the first of the kind to kind of explore the topic, but at least as far as you uh, you know, alter parallel universes go that was that's the closest one we can compare it to it i thought that was an interesting take but the humor felt so forced the action was i don't know relatively unimpressive although michelle yo is quite up there in the year so you can't really expect much better yeah i felt the same way like it and it just went on and on and it was relentless it's kind of like um when you watch a film like Hell Driver, it reminded me of Hell Driver, where directors have clearly got talent and they're loving what they're doing, but they're just putting too much on the screen. Yeah, and I, the humor just didn't work for me. I mean, humor is subjective, so perhaps that's, you could say that's saving grace, but it, I felt like there was someone shouting at my face saying, laugh, laugh, this is supposed to be funny, laugh. Yeah. Like, it's just, did not work for me at all, but, but... Uh, the, again, the, the special effects, the the concept, the science fiction concept, I can give them a little bit of credit for that, but definitely nowhere near the credit that the film is getting. But anyway, uh, RRR and everything everywhere all at once were my two overrated films of the year, but that's that's really all I had to say about 2022 in cinema. One film that I don't know if you have any films that you really wish you'd saw 
But one film that I really wish I'd caught was The Whale. But it's, I can't find it anywhere. Like, it's supposed to be out for over a month now, but it's, it's no, in no cinema near me. It's only out in, like, a few major cinemas throughout the country. Mm. Are they hoping for, like, a word of mouth hit? I, maybe, I guess. I don't know. But I was desperate to see this movie, and I just couldn't, couldn't do it. I'm probably going to... The first chance, if it, whether or not it goes to a theater near me, or the first chance it goes... The first second it goes on, on media, I'm kind of jumping on it right away. Well, it's uh, yet to receive a release in the UK. I think it comes out in February. Okay. Okay. Well, maybe, maybe, maybe there, there are some parts of the world that they haven't released it yet, and that's why they're waiting for the whole media release. Yeah. Uh, all right. So any, anything else to, to add to this, to this section of our, of our episode? I suppose like uh, the titles that we've all um, or we've put together are really diverse, and it shows like um, each region of the world has uh, really put out really good quality films. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think compared to last year, I am happier with my list. Yeah. So why don't you? So why don't we go over what news there have been since last time we spoke? So uh, Japan Foundation, which I mentioned earlier in the uh, podcast, uh episode it's announced its touring film program lineup in the uk and um there are around 20 films that will be screened in art house cinemas um from february 3rd to march 31st each cinema has a selection of films from the complete list there are two classics uh one animated film one documentary and a lot of contemporary dramas Films that we've mentioned are and that we've both watched on this podcast include under the open sky uh, by Miwa Nishikawa, Angry Sun, which made our top 10 list, uh, Joint, Ito, uh, both of which uh, were in the Osaka Asian Film Festival 2021, uh, Hold Me Back, which was at the New York Asian Film Festival 2021, um, and also Tokyo Night Sky is always the densest shade of blue. So those would be my recommendations for the touring film program. Okay, and this is not the same thing that you announced last week with the online version yeah just a reminder that uh japan film festival plus uh started in december of last year and it runs uh to june of this year and over a period over this period you'll get uh 12 films screened they're all independent films that have been selected by um independent cinema managers from across japan and they're all available to stream for free legally uh, in many countries outside of Japan. So you just head over to the Japan, a Japanese Film Festival Plus website, sign up by email, and you can watch these independent films. Yep, we got, at the end of the month, Rotterdam International Film Festival 2023 taking place from January 25th to February 5th. Uh, an initial list of films uh, has been released by the festival. The full list comes out on January 18th and tickets go on sale on January 20th. But just to give you an idea of the scope of, uh, the scope of uh, Asian participation, we've got 32 films from India, 9 from Korea, 5 from Taiwan, 9 from Singapore, 7 from Hong Kong, 3 from China, 3 from Thailand, and 26 from Japan. So this covers uh, features and shorts. Uh, like. Uh, highlights uh, for me, at least, uh, Junji Sakamoto's latest work, Okiko and the World, which is a period drama told mostly in black and white that follows the meeting of a 
of the of a daughter of a fallen samurai and two manure men. Uh, these are guys who sell human waste to farmers, and uh, it's uh, shot mostly in black and white. And uh, it features uh, Haru Kuroki and Sosuke Ikematsu and Renji Ishibashi, who are really great actors. And then you've got the documentary One Hundred Years and Hope uh, by Takashi Nishihara which covers the Communist Party of Japan. Um, I actually interviewed him for his film Sisterhood at the Osaka Asian Film Festival 2018, I think. Uh, he's a director that mixes socially uh, conscious dramas and documentaries. And this documentary, I get the sense it might be something similar to Kazuhara's Reiwa Uprising, as it gives a snapshot of like the party and running for uh, fielding candidates running for elections in Tokyo and uh, national uh, elections. And um, there's a lot of anime uh, on the uh, list, uh, including a whole f- uh, thread dedicated to Masaaki Yuasa and two of his films that I highly, highly, highly recommend uh, going to see in the cinema, uh, Mind Game and The Night is Short, Walk on Girl. Uh, like, if you can see this with an audience in the cinema, you'll have an absolute whale of a time. And in other news, Japan Society in New York have worked with the Japan Foundation to present a new film series called Seijin Suzuki Centennial, which celebrates 100 years of the director Seijin Suzuki, who was born in 1923. And uh, it presents uh, Tokyo Drifter and a number of his lesser known films. And these are all on imported 35mm prints from Japan. And uh, yeah, these it seems like these are all in-person screenings, which are taking place uh, from February 3rd to February 11th at Japan Society New York. I've only seen, from, from the Seijun Suzuki, I've only seen Tokyo Drifter and Branded to Kill. I, I, I have wanted to, to explore more of his filmography, but I've never just had the opportunity or the time to, to do so. Oh, yeah, like his Nikatsu stuff is great. Um, I'm trying to, uh, what's it, Police Bureau, um, something, something, something. Basically, anything he's done with uh, Diamond Joe, Joe Shishido, it's just uh, absolutely fantastic, fun film, fun films. Uh, but also his um, later stuff, which he did in the 1980s, sort of like um, comeback uh, material. Uh, let's see, if I, uh, Yumeji, um, Ziggur Weissen, and um, Kagaroza, they're absolutely phenomenal films. Um, uh yeah so if you can watch those three arrow video actually put them out on a dvd set like a few years ago uh yeah um i try to think of other seijin suzuki films it's like uh the one where everybody's on the bus and they're hijacked uh like what's it eight seconds of terror or something like that a gate of flesh as well post-world war ii um drama um yeah, just so many great films uh, from Seijin Suzuki, but they've picked some of his lesser known films to screen at Japan Society New York. And also, uh, Netflix have put up the first 30 episodes of Monster for people to view. So that's something else to get excited about. This Netflix UK, or do you know for a fact that it's both US and UK? Uh, it seems like it's the US as well, because I've seen US commentators on anime websites uh, make articles about it. Okay, okay, that's interesting then. So yeah, first 30 episodes of Monster are on Netflix. Uh, this is a great chance to get acquainted with one of the best TV anime or one of the best TV shows ever. All right. All right. And uh, I think that's it uh, for news, unless you have anything. No, I didn't, I didn't follow that closely this week. And I, I think now we can do, we can end the episode with sort of like the pleasant note of 
what we have watched or consumed uh, since the last time we spoke. And it's it's a, I'll, I'll start since you did the news. Uh, and um, I mean, it's a lo- it was a lot for me since I had a lot of free time uh, during the holidays, but also, uh, you know, trying to catch up with films that I've seen. And some notable, of course, some of them are men- I mentioned because made it in my top 10, but some that perhaps I didn't mention or are uh, deserve mention are I watched the film Wonderwall at the Japanese uh, Film Festival 4+, Plus, the thing that you posted. Yeah. Uh, there was I I don't know I didn't it didn't impress me that much uh, relatively forgettable. There's a couple more films that I, I I wanted to watch but just didn't have time. Maybe if it's still available, uh, or or if it's still available in a while, maybe I'll 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 catch it up. So yeah, that you've got six films that run until March, and then six more films will be added from March. I watched RRR, like I said, I watched uh, the Cronenberg's latest feature, which is Crimes of the Future. It is all like a, a cyberpunk, cyberpunk science fiction drama. Said in this strange future where humans are mutating and have lost the ability to pain, so it's very common for people to perform surgery on themselves because they don't feel pain anymore. I it was very bizarre. Uh, it stars Viggo Mortensen. Uh, I don't know. I, I was disappointed. I, I honestly, I haven't liked any of Cronenberg's recent films, though, at least of the ones that I've seen. I, I, I do think that he's maybe lost it a little bit. He's complained about his inability to acquire funding, but. I don't know. I don't know that that's necessarily his problem. His son, Brandon Cronenberg, is also doing films. Have you seen any of his? No, I have not. I've seen a lot of people talk about Possessor. I might, might be worth checking out. I don't know. Um, but okay, what else? A Glass Onion, like I mentioned, Pinocchio. I watched Argentina 1985, which is, I think, a, a, uh, like a, it's been shortlisted for the Academy Award. I don't know. I don't remember if it's nominated for a Golden Globe or not, but it's one of those foreign films that has been making the rounds recently. And it is uh, uh, mostly a court procedural about the the trial of uh, Argentinian war criminals after the dictatorship fell in 1983. And I think the trial was held in 1985. So that's why it's called Argentina 1985. And it was a fairly normal police procedure. I thought it was very effective, but nothing that kind of blew my mind. It's kind of strange. I've seen, I mean, this like political court courtroom, the political courtroom genre, it's almost its own genre. There've been a lot of films about it. And yet, like all these years, nobody has done it better than Judgment at Nuremberg uh, from 1961. It's like, why can nobody beat that movie in terms of quality? Yeah. But anyway, I mean, this was not bad, of course. Um, What else? I watched, you know, The Worst Person in the World, Car, Triangle of Sadness, Mad, God. Oh, I, I read a short novel called A Psalm for the Wild Built, uh, which is a, um, a short science fiction novel about a world where humans and, and uh, AI robots live separately in a, in a world where it's geographically divided very evenly between them. And one human tired with city life decides to head into, so into the wilderness and stumbles into one of these uh, AI and kind of, they have kind of a road trip together. I of course my my journey with the Steam Deck continues and and I've played a few games but the one that is noteworthy that I put a lot of hours in is Stardew Valley. <laughs> I don't know if you've heard about it. It's it's an RPG slash farming simulator. Yeah, I've seen images. Uh, it's a kind of a fun game reminiscent of old Nintendo games of sixteen uh, bit era Nintendo games. Uh, I I'm I'm getting a little bit bored, tired of it, but I, I've already spent. Like maybe fifty or sixty hours in it, so it's definitely an enjoyable game. Yeah, 
And I think, I mean, that's probably all I'm going to say about my my media consumption. So how about you, Jason? Well, I'll lead with video games. Um, I started playing Total War Warhammer, uh, which is reminiscent of Heroes of Might and Magic in terms of like a grand campaign and then um, battles. Um, but the battles are real-time battles uh, using Warhammer models. Uh, but the one, uh, I find it to be a real time sink. So I've kind of put that on pause because I don't want to spend hours and hours playing games. Um, instead, I'm doing them in short bursts on the PS Vita with Muramasa Rebirth. Uh, by Vanillaware, which is a gorgeous, gorgeous um, sort of side-scrolling beat-em-up uh, with some platforming involved, and uh, set in Edo-era Japan. Um, really great artwork and character design that makes me sort of stop and look at the screen and look at the characters and take screenshots. Also, great um, score by uh, Bassescape, the guys, uh, uh, I think Hitoshi Sakamoto, who d- uh, does music for like Tactics Ogre, uh, he's part of them. But yeah, great music. Um, so like really enjoy jumping into and out of like uh, quick battles and that. And um, uh, just to interject, uh, like I, I I didn't mention this because I didn't play a lot. But uh, uh, one game that I tried was uh, on the Steam Deck was Octopath Traveler. Okay, how is it? I, I wonder. I, I, it's enjoyable. It's like essentially like a, a a remake in spirit of the old Final Fantasy of the Nintendo Final Fantasy game, but it. Uh, visually that's why i'm mentioning it because of what you said about the visuals of the game that you played this one was also visually stunning it has this sort of like weird tilt shift perspective yeah uh that uh, gives it uh and really interesting graphics but it, the overall look is very very interesting yeah that's cool yeah it's one um if i can get it uh on uh pc or steam deck i would try if i had a steam deck uh, yeah. but it is on the pc yeah 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 it's on steam service yeah, and you can uh, probably, it's probably, I'm, I got it on discount. I got it for very cheap. I, I don't remember how much, but I thought it was worth it. I, th- I kind of got my eye on Aliens Fireteam Elite. Um, <laughs> okay. Yeah, in terms of uh, films, I ended 2022 with uh, Wages of Fear and um, Eternity End of Day and uh, a rewatch of Werner Herzog's Fitzcarraldo. And I started. I think with uh, Clouseau. My favorite has always been Diabolique. Wages of Fear, I enjoy it, but n- not to the same extent. Whereas Diabolique is just of another world. I don't know if you've seen that one. Uh, I've seen it in like many horror lists and horror film programs, so I kind of know yeah. the ending, the twist ending. But um, oh, that's that's the best part. Don't don't say anymore. I, I, I'll try and track it I, though. I went in knowing nothing about it, uh, but anyway. Yeah, Wages of Fear, I was like shouting at the screen and I was like clenching it's, my very, fists. I mean, and... very, very influential film. Very, very influential film. I mean, sadly, he did, he's not known for anything other than those two, but yeah. those two films are one after the other. Uh, and I, yeah, I started this year with uh, Eureka, the Shinji Aoyama film. It's like a uh, like film told in two parts. Um, I, it's like really, really good. I started using my letterbox to count as a film diary. I have a paper film diary that my mother has bought me, um, but I want to use a letterbox one to augment those notes because the site has like really pretty posters and um, it collates sort of all the data of films that you've watched at the end of the year. So it tells you which director or actor you've watched the most. And um, since starting the diary, um, I've watched a film a day. Um, notable films include um, Eureka, Wong uh, Kar Wai's Ashes of Time, Hideo Gosha's Heat Wave, which was one of Masahiro Motoki's early films. 
um, Sense and Sensibility, which I caught on Netflix, and um, I started watching Squid Game. Was that the Ang Lee Sense and Sensibility? Yes, 1995, Hugh Grant's Emma Thompson, which I really enjoyed it, actually. Really good adaptation of the novel. I've never seen it, but yeah, I've heard good things too. I, f- I think I might prefer it to Pride and Prejudice. Um, anyway, uh, yeah. And in terms of books, I finished The Bells of Old Tokyo by Anna Sherman. And I highly, highly recommend the book for anyone who's interested in Japan or travel writing or history. It's a mix of like um, psychogeography, history, and like uh, writers' personal experiences of living in Japan and trying to track down temple bells in different districts of Tokyo. Um, She writes about notable meetings with people uh, in various areas, including like a descendant of Tokugawa Ieyasu and um, like a woman who survived the Tokyo uh, fire bombings in World War II. Uh, Really harrowing accounts of those things. And um, I found that Anna Sherman's writings like very smooth and she slips between personal anecdotes and like historical details nice and easily. And it's always informative and entertaining. And um, yeah, the bibliography at the back is giving me a, a paper trail because she's done so much research. Like I've like interested in like reading the books that she's drawn from. So that's, that was a book that my mother got from the library for me when she spotted it, and uh, I'm glad she really got it. And I, you know, I would uh, purchase it. It's that good. All right. And that was my cultural consumption over the Christmas period. All right. Yeah. So a nice way to pass the holidays. That's for sure. Uh, okay, so unless you have anything else that you'd like to close with, Jason. Yeah. Um, oh, oh, yeah. Hirokazu Koreeda. Ah, this, maybe this should have been in the news section. But um, uh, okay. Hirokazu Koreeda has the Netflix series Makanai starting uh, soon. I believe it's January 12th. And um, we've mentioned it before on the podcast, but essentially it's the story of... Uh, teenage girl who goes to a geisha house to become a cook for the geisha and Hirokazu Koreeda has so this one is the one that has several directors in it right yeah lots of up-and-coming directors who have been given reins and different writers as well so um Koreeda I think he's listed as director for an episode but he's also acting as showrunner and uh we have um slightly more so Mac and I starts on January 12th on Netflix. So by the time this podcast goes out, it'll be available to watch. And more details on Koreeda's upcoming film Monster. Uh, nothing about the story yet, but a teaser trailer was released. And we know that the film stars Sakura Ando, Eita Nagayama, Mitsuki Takahata, and um, it's got music by Ryuichi Sakamoto. Oh, that's something to look forward to. Yeah, it's released uh, June 2nd this year. Okay. And those are the last minute news flashes. That's fine. That's that's perfectly all right. Okay, so I think this was a nice episode, a nice episode to start the new year in commemoration of the year that just passed. We've listed our favorite films. Hopefully the, the year that comes will have even better films, or at least films that are as good as the year that passed. But I'm sure we'll enjoy it other way. Uh, and uh, like like every year, season three will um, season four. Sorry, will come eventually. We don't know what theme yet. We might do a couple more specials before that, but usually around March or April, we'll start our new season uh, with our new theme, whatever that ends up being. I think that's it for our episode on the best films or our top films of 2022. 
Uh, if you have any questions, comments, suggestions, concerns, please uh, let us know at heroic-purgatory.blogspot.com or you can tweet us at uh, Heroic Purgatory all in one word on Twitter. Otherwise, we'll see you next time. We took for granted.